And we're going to be uh, delving into our second uh, lesson uh, in the, our quarterly in the book of James. And uh, as Kula mentioned, we're going to be studying here the perfecting, about the perfecting of our faith, or at least reviewing our lesson together. And um, for those who are tuning in and viewing us and watching us here, we're glad that you joined us as well. And we want to make sure that you know that you can call in uh, or email in any time to pick up your copy of our, the CD or the DVD presentation of, uh, of the lesson. And you can call in to 916-457-6511 or you can, uh, you can email CSH, that stands for Central Study Hour, CSH at saccentral.org. And I believe the offer is 21441. I believe that's the one. You want to call in and receive your copy of that. Okay. Well, we are here and we are uh, getting into the book of James and it is exciting and, um, and riveting. And by the way, um, if you want to, if you go and uh, go into our website, which is saccentral.org, uh, you can also um, view the, uh, the edited version of this class and you'll also can pick up some study notes. Uh, and so those will be available as well uh, there on our website. And so uh, let's, uh, let's go in our Bibles here to the book of James as we launch in to our study and uh, talk about this as someone told me once, that pesky word perfection. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that and uh, discover what it, it, what it means, uh, Christian perfection, biblical perfection, character perfection, what it is and what it isn't. And uh, by the time we're done here today, hopefully we'll be encouraged in the Lord and strengthened and our faith will be uh, certain here. Um, you may recall, if, you, if, you're a, uh, if you're a car lover and have followed the production of vehicles uh, along the way, that in 1983, uh, Toyota chairman uh, I.G. Toyoda issued a challenge to build the be world's best car. And so this challenge prompted Toyota to embark on a, what was then known as a top secret project named, codenamed F1. And that uh, stood for Flagship One. The F1 project aimed to develop a flagship sedan that would expand Toyota's production line, offering both long-time and new customers an upmarket product. Six years later, 1989, after an extended development process involving 60 designers, 24 engineering teams, 1,400 engineers, 2,300 technicians, 220 support workers, approximately 450 prototypes, and over $1 billion US dollars in costs, the F1 project was finally completed. The resulting flagship was, does anyone know? The Lexus, the Lexus LS 400. That was the flagship prototype or the resulting flagship was the Lexus LS 400. And its debut, the LS 400 was widely praised for its quietness, for well-appointed and ergonomic interior, engine performance, built quality, it was quality built, aerodynamics, fuel economy, and, uh, and value. So the original Lexus slogan, uh, does anyone know what that original Lexus slogan was? Well, it was developed after Team One representatives visited Lexus designers in Japan and they noticed the incredible attention to detail and they came up with this motto, the relentless pursuit of perfection. You got it. 
the, the, the relentless pursuit of perfection. Now it's just the pursuit of perfection. Lexus manufacturers may have discovered the truth about the big picture about biblical perfection uh, that many have missed. And we'll talk about the Apostle Paul in when we get to reading Philippians chapter four in just a little bit. But like the Apostle Paul, when he said, I press toward the mark I have not attained, but I press toward the mark, uh, many, they think they have, uh, they, they never think they've arrived. Um, that's just like Lexus. They are relentlessly pursuing the prize, continuing to aim high, never lowering the standards, and always pursuing the goal of Christ-likeness of character. That's the uh, Christian life. That was Paul, what Paul strove for, and that's what uh, you and I are striving for. Always learning how to be more gracious, more considerate, more courageous, more like Jesus. But always trusting, and this is the key, and we'll talk more about this as we go along, always trusting that the author of our faith, the one who began our faith, um, will also complete and finish our faith, you see. He is the perfecter of our faith. So what God has begun in us, he will be faithful to perform. You can read that in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. God is with us from the beginning and right through the very end. Some folk get the, uh, the idea in their minds that, well, we come to Jesus, Jesus forgives us and then sends us on our way and we're kind of on our own. But that's not the case. Um, what he's begun in us, he will be faithful to perform and complete in us as we cooperate with him. So we'll talk more about this idea of the perfecting of our faith. Keep in mind the Lexus motto, the relentless pursuit of perfection. That is the, the goal. That was Paul's goal. And that's the goal of the Christian. That's what we are pursuing in our walk with Jesus. So we'll chat about what that looks like because when we talk about as someone said the p word perfection some folk get a little bit out of shape and a little concerned um, that we're talking about something that is not um, that is not biblical and uh, by uh, for, for sure the concept of perfection is very very biblical question is what does it mean what does it look like uh, what isn't biblical perfection and so we'll get to all of that so we're going to go over to Sunday's lesson and uh, we're going to just start right in there faith lasts faith lasts and um, and talk a little bit here about the persistence of faith uh, what is faith Hebrews 11:1 1 is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. That's right. It's basically, if we, would, uh, if we condensed it, it would be simply taking God at his word. And if God's word encourages us to obey, uh, obey God in some particular area in our lives, then faith obeys. Faith just simply takes God at his word. Faith is a set of beliefs founded on God's word and carried about in our lives. So when we talk about my faith or our faith, we're talking here about a way of life as we follow Jesus. That's what we're referring to. The faith that I believe or the, f the faith that I have or our faith, my faith. Now this faith, this lifestyle is to grow and, and is to last irrespective of difficulties and trials. And that's God's plan for you and for me. Um, and I would, uh, I would hazard to say, and I, I think we'd all agree, trials are just an inevitable part of life. And so as a Christian, uh, are we going to escape challenges or trials? 
most people have challenges whether they believe in Jesus or not. Is the Christian going to escape some? They're not going to escape challenges and difficulties either, but there are greater challenges and difficulties that come to the, to the Christian. When we side up on Jesus' side and we become friends with Jesus, we adopt Jesus' enemies. And uh, there, is a, uh, there is an enemy uh, who uh, the Bible calls uh, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yeah, he's not some big cuddly pussycat. He's a big roaring lion trying to uh, not just delay us, not just to frustrate us, although he does those things, but also to destroy us. And so certainly trials come to the Christian life, and, uh, and the Bible writers wrote about that. And so we're going to take a look at a few verses here and, um, and look at what they had to say about trials for the Christians. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Notice, notice what Peter says about trials or the trial of our faith. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... If need be, you have been grieved, you have been grieved or distressed by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow, powerful. Here in Peter's synopsis of the Christian life. He presents the Christian as being bombarded by annoyances, by problems, by disappointments, by different things that, uh, that Satan uses basically to destroy our faith. If the devil can destroy a believer's faith, he's got them. Uh, the, the faith is like the anchor point in a Christian's life. If he can destroy faith, he's got us. Person, personal faith, like gold, as Peter describes it here, like gold, uh, gets tested to check, to check its value or that its value might be determined. And uh, so Peter, writing here about the Christian's faith being tried, it's much more precious than what? Gold. Now, with gold prices the way they are today, that's pretty precious. Our faith is more precious than than gold. And that gold, that faith, needs be tried, according to what Peter says here. And he even talks about rejoicing. Did you read, did you see that? He talks about rejoicing during trial. They say that they, the, final, the final stage of gold production is the refining process. When we enter the, 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 the furnace of affliction, so to speak, or the, the, um, the, the fires of trials, the purpose, the, one of the end purposes of trials is to purify us, to get the dross off of us, to present us. Jesus wants to present us to the Father, not 99.9% .9 pure, but 100% pure by his grace and through faith. Let's jump over to 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and 13. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. And then we're coming to James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And we're going to have... Uh, have someone read that for us. First Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Notice what Peter says again about trials. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange or do not continue to be astounded. Do not continue to be astounded concerning the fiery trial. Now, that word fiery uh, simply means scorching. And uh, in the context, this would refer primarily, probably, to the persecution the early Christians would, would experience. He said, don't consider it a, a, a strange thing when you experience uh, scorching heat at the hands of your persecutors. 
which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Notice verse 13. But do what? Rejoice. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Okay, so the devil brings about trials, we know that, but God overrules by making them the means of developing our characters. Okay, we're gonna read James chapter one, verses two and three, thank you. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So what, did James, what is James saying here? Count it all what? Joy. Wow. Are you noticing a running th- uh, thread here between these three verses? Rejoice, rejoice, and joy. As a matter of fact, here in James, where it says count it all joy, that's unmixed joy. Unmixed with discouragement, unmixed with concern, unmixed with doubt. Pure joy. Count it all joy. In uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, um, there's a story uh, that where the disciples have been asked not to preach in the name of Jesus. And um, Gamaliel offers some advice to the j- religious leaders and tells them, you know, just hold tight. You know, if this thing is not, if this thing's not of God, it's going to fade out. It's not going to survive. Um, but if it is, we ought to give it consideration. We ought to consider this thing. And uh, in verse 41, in Acts chapter uh, 5, verse 41, um, after they were uh, released from prison, it says, so they departed, this is Peter, James, and a couple other disciples, so they departed from the presence of the council, notice the word, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Hmm. Wow, that's huge. So James says here in James 1 verses 2 and 3, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We'll talk about that patience concept in just a moment. But through an intelligent understanding of the causes of suffering and through faith in God, that's what uh, James is encouraging us to consider here. To consider it all joy because we have an intelligent understanding of the causes of suffering. Who's the instigator of suffering? The enemy. Um, if we were to consider uh, one of the greatest sufferers in, in, uh, when we consider Bible characters, what would, who would you think about? We would think about Job, that's right, yeah. Of course, Jesus suffered most, more than anyone, but Job comes to mind right away for sure. Um, Job suffered tremendously physical, um, emotional, social uh, challenges. And God was teaching him to have an intelligent understanding of the cause of sufferings and to trust in him. And God is asking us to do the same thing, isn't he? What's the purpose of trials? Three things. Firstly, reveals what's in our hearts. That's the, one of the purposes of trials, to reveal what's in our hearts. It's easy to be a fair weather Christian. You know, but if it's been raining, and it, we haven't had rain uh, for a long time, but if it's raining 24 consecutive days, I think probably here we'd rejoice. But if, it's, if, if we've got, been going through a drought, and we have been, it's, it's kind of hard to, uh, to be sometimes happy about the, the weather and the situation we're going through here, the fires that are being experienced. Hmm. If there were no trials, perhaps everyone would be a Christian for all the wrong reasons. If it was just all a bed of roses, Folk would uh, be jumping on the bandwagon. 
for all the wrong reasons. So number one, reveals what's in our heart. Number two, uh, we talked about this earlier, trials are designed to purify us. They're designed to purify us. If you want to take the dross off something, you turn up the heat. God allows trials to, co- to come to our lives to refine our characters. And the good news about it is that God has his hand on the, on the dial. He knows just how hot you can take it with his help and by his grace. And you can trust God through those trials. And number three, uh, God allows trials to come to us to strengthen our faith and our experience. So if God can get me through this present issue that I'm having, and we look back on that experience and say, man, God got me through that. In the new experience we might be facing, the new challenge we might be facing, we can be encouraged to know that God's going to get us through that. So faith is... Uh, our faith is, is strengthened and our experience is strengthened and that's one of the purposes of trials. And I want to repeat this uh, for the sake of somebody here today that no matter what, we can trust God through the process. God knows what to bring to us. And I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able but with the temptation make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it patience that's what trials produces according to James chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 faith produces the trying of our faith produces patience that could probably be better uh, translated perseverance so the trying or the testing of our faith produces perseverance In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, do you remember what it says? After the three angels' messages have been delineated, uh, those who receive and accept those messages um, are listed as those who are patient. Here is is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. That word patience, again, is perseverance, you see. Perseverance. So here are God's last day saints that have persevered. They've endured uh, Babylon's... Uh, cup of, of, of uh, false doctrines. They've endured the beast power and the call to worship the beast and the receiving of the mark of the beast. They've said, no, we're going to stand for Jesus through thick and through thin. We're going to stand for him. And so they persevere through these challenging, challenging times. In Matthew chapter 12, 24, verse 13, um, Jesus said, those that endure to the end, the same shall be what? Saved. And this isn't the type of endurance where you grit your teeth and you just kind of make it through like this and you're hoping for the best and, okay, God, are you with me? No, the endurance is not that type of endurance. This is, a, this is the endurance of trusting and abiding in Jesus and knowing that you can uh, lean on him when things get a little difficult and he's going to see you through. You endure to the end because you know that your hand is in his hand and that he's going to lead you all the way to his kingdom, you see, all the, all the way through challenges and difficulties and trials. Hmm. Endure till the end. Those that endure to the end shall be saved. And if we, if, we, if we get into the habit of murmuring and complaining and whinging and fussing, all those things deteriorate the faith that Christ wants to, wants to build in us, you see. Those things harm us and weaken our enduring power. Um, if we remember the story of the children of Israel when they wandered through the, the wilderness there, 40 years, um, from the original crew that started out in that wilderness wandering, there were only two that made it through to the promised land. You remember their names, right? Joshua and Caleb. They endured till the end. As a matter of fact, it only just began. When they got into the promised land, they now needed to subdue the territory. And uh, we're told that Caleb, as, a, as an old man, steps forward 
And he says, you know what, I've not, I've not yet possessed that mountain that God has said I ought to take, and so I'm going to take it. Here he was, an old man, and still courageous, still full of faith and hope and trust in the promises of God. Uh, there's no excuse, no matter how young or how old we are, God wants us to endure till the end. And if the end be Jesus' return, he wants us to endure till then. If the end be death, he wants us to endure till then, you see. Enduring till the end. There's a fellow by the name of Douglas Mawson. And Douglas Mawson was a contemporary and colleague of Ernest Shackleton. You're probably more familiar with the name Ernest Shackleton. One of my fa favorite stories. This great, um, great man who, who uh, oh, I mean, went on this phenomenal, these phenomenal treks, one phenomenal trek. He got himself in a spot of trouble. And, uh, but when it was all said and done, not one of his crew perished. He was able to salvage and save all of his crew. But Douglas Mawson um, was a contemporary of Ernest Shackleton. And during a scientific expedition in the Antarctic, he lost his colleagues 300 miles from safety. And uh, according to the story, this man became frostbitten, um, starvation. And these things caused his hair, his nails, his skin, and the entire soles of his feet to fall off during a grueling two-month trek back to camp. I mean, talk about painful. At one point, he fell down a crevice and he was left dangling in the abyss from a rope upon which he dragged up his disintegrating body. I mean, this guy was a hero. Mawson arrived back at base only hours after the ship, which would have taken him back to civilization, had set sail. He was, however, able to send a message back to his fiancée in Australia. And uh, the short message uh, is interesting, and um, it reveals uh, how heroic these individuals were of the expedition age. He wrote this, no complaint of no self and no self-pity, he said to his wife, deeply regret delay, only just managed to reach hut. Didn't mention his suffering feet and no nails and skin falling off and frost, frostbite. <laughs> Talk about suffering uh, in silence. Um, but certainly there's an expression of humility here, isn't there? He wasn't boasting about all the, all the, all the victories he, he'd achieved. He just simply told his wife, I finally made it. De uh, deeply regret the delay. Just managed to reach the heart. But he endured until the end. He made it persevered and God is looking in these last days for folk men and women boys and girls young people to endure till the very end knowing that Jesus will be with them through thick and through thin holding their hand helping them and guiding them uh, there's so much I would like to say on this lesson but we've got to move on to Monday's lesson because time is a ticking away we're going to go to Monday's lesson let's talk about perfection here for a little bit perfection perseverance is a, is a part of the perfecting process. God wants to us to endure to the end. If we continue to endure, God keeps on working in us, keeps on working on us, and uh, continues to perfect that thing concerning us. Okay, now perfection is a very misunderstood topic, but uh, the Bible is replete with the idea and the topic regarding perfection. And uh, we'll take a look here. Uh, someone's going to be reading for us Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. All right, Angie, fantastic. We're going to look here at James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 again. And uh, then we'll go to Ephesians 4, and then we'll come to Manjeet. Okay, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Uh, James writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or perseverance. But let perseverance have its what? Perfect work that you may be 
perfect, that's right, that you may be perfect or mature, that you may be perfect, mature, and complete, lacking how much? Nothing. That's a tall order, isn't it? That's amazing. Lacking nothing. This is a high ideal. If you compare that with Romans chapter 5, uh, just flip over there with me real quick. And uh, Paul talks about this, this progression as well. Did you notice the faith? Faith uh, is tried. Tried produces patience. Trials produce patience. And then patience has its, leads to perfection. Yeah, notice how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Now, verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given unto us. So faith, according to Paul, has trusted, basically has endured because of the steadfast love of God. And that's the only thing that will encourage us and help us along the way, knowing that God can be trusted, that his love is steadfast. Everything else around us might be changing, but God, God's love doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has your back and he's watching out for you and he loves you deeply. And so here we have this, these encouraging words. So James and Paul both see this progression. Faith is going to be tried. But rejoice. Or as Paul puts it, glory in tribulation. Why? Knowing that the trying of your faith works patience or perseverance. And that perseverance will lead to the perfection of your, perseverance will lead to the perfection of your character. And then Paul adds also hope because the love of God hath been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, you see. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13 also talks about perfection. Till we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay. So here, here the, the goal, the high ideal is character perfection. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Thanks, Manji. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has all also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press forward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Okay. Amen. Thank you very much. Quite a read there, but it's, uh, it's worthwhile to consider. Now, what did Paul say here with regard to uh, perfection? Had he attained? Or he said, I, uh, not that I had already attained. In that statement, what is he saying? It's, he's saying that he hasn't attained, but he's also saying that it's attainable. Isn't that true? He's saying that it's attainable. He said, I've, uh, but I'm, what I'm doing is I'm forgetting those things in the past, and I'm pressing on. To, uh, to that particular goal, that prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the same man, interestingly enough, who said, I have fought a good fight, I have 
finish the race. Wow, I finished the race. How do we reconcile those two statements? He said, I, I, I did not attain, I did not apprehend. And yet at the end of his life, he said, well, I finished the race. <laughs> By the end of his life, he could look back to see how far God had led him and that he had done all he knew he needed to do to get to the end. You know, the, the idea of, of perfection, character perfection, um, we could uh, equate to the, uh, the motto that Nike popularized, that, that motto that said there is no finish line. There is no finish line. The Christian life is one of always progressing, always advancing. You know, even when we get, even when we, uh, get to heaven and when, after the thousand years and we come back here and the meek inherit the earth, we'll always be growing and always be developing and always learning and always discovering and always abounding and always experiencing more love. And I mean, it's going to be, it's a never-ending journey. Have you ever thought about that? Always. Some folk get it in their minds that they're going to get to a point and that's it. You've reached, you've reached the, 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 the perfect of perfects, just like God is perfect. Mm, no, never. We'll always be growing and always ascending, you see. There is no finish line. The Christian will never be satisfied with anything short of patterning their lives after the unselfish, sacrificial life of Jesus. And every time we look at the life of Jesus, we're reminded very quickly that we are far from perfect. And the, the irony of, of, of coming closer to Jesus is the idea that we're actually getting closer to him. The further away we, the closer we get to him, the further away we, we, we feel like we're becoming more like him, you see. Um, it's it's uh, very interesting, the Christian experience. Getting closer to Jesus means we feel less and less like we are living like Jesus because we get to know more about Jesus, get to see more of his grace and more of his love and more of his perfection, and we say, wow. I just want to bask in that and I want to em embrace that and I want to live that. And uh, we ask God to help us with that, you see. It may be easy to get a handle on biblical perfection by stating what biblical perfection is not. So here it is. Biblical perfection does not mean holy flesh. And back in the, um, the early days of this movement, um, there was the holy flesh movement. And they believed that uh, they had attained to perfection uh, of character that, to the point where they, anything they thought, anything they did, uh, no matter what it was, uh, was uh, still uh, was, was, came from God. And it led some of these believers who believed that they were locked in, couldn't fall, couldn't fail, they were just, they could never fall from obedience, they were always, always living that perfect life. Uh, led some of them to even taking up certain vices and they justified those taking up those vices by saying that they had, uh, you know, reached this holy flesh position, this holy flesh, uh, um, uh, reached this goal in their life. So it's not holy flesh. It does not mean, number two, it does not mean that it is impossible to sin, though it is possible not to sin. I'll say that again for someone's sake. It, is not, it does not mean character perfection, biblical perfection, does not mean that it is impossible to sin, although it is possible not to sin. Number three, it does not mean ever reaching a time when we will be able to make it on our own. No, that's, that's not what biblical perfection is. Number four, it, biblical perfection, it does not lead one to feel that he is wholly perfect and have uh, leading to pride or self-confidence. And that's certainly not biblical perfection. And number five, it does not mean to become as unsurpassably perfect as God is perfect. It does not mean that one has reached the absolute ultimate limits of growth. 
That's not biblical perfection. The Bible is concerned with moral perfection. And it states very clearly that it is a work of God. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Again, Jesus doesn't just forgive us and send us on our way. Through the Holy Spirit, he lives and dwells in our hearts. And we grow and he leads us to, from victory unto victory. That's character perfection. Not attaining to a certain level but growing in grace and overcoming as Jesus overcomes, uh, overcame, you see. All God, Christ wants for us is our willingness to stay connected to him, our determination to aim high in all aspects of our lives, and our integrity in honoring high standards. Um, as the author of the lesson put it, life, Christian life, Christian perfection, is our life, our walk with Jesus is like a work of art. We can always be improved upon. And so that's character, perfection, constantly uh, attaining victories and growing in grace and Christ's life covering us with his perfection. Down the bottom of Monday's lesson, there is a question, and um, it's an interesting question, and uh, I believe Ray has a comment related to that question, so we'll come to you in just a moment here. The question is, if you died right now, would would you be good enough to be saved? Or if you died two weeks after you accepted Jesus, would you have or would you have been good enough to be saved? Do you think that in six months you will be good enough? Ray, you got a comment on that? I sure do, Pastor. I have to admit that when I first read it, it almost seems like a trick question to me. <laughs> but as I reflect deeper into the, what is being asked and I look into and search in my heart, Honestly, I have to say that on my own, I'll never be good enough to be saved. But thanks for the Bible, for God's promises, and because of Jesus' righteousness, we can be saved, no matter what spiritual level we may be Mm. at, either a new Christian or an old Christian struggling through um, temptation throughout our years. As long as we surrender, thank God to the Lord that... uh, through Jesus' righteousness, we can find that salvation, His promise. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Powerful. That's a powerful thought. The answer to the question might tell us a little bit about our understanding of uh, how we relate to character perfection. Um, you remember the parable of the, uh, the seed that grew? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus talked about it grew, first the blade, then the ear, and then the, the full ear of corn. At every stage of growth that that corn experiences or any stage of growth, any tree experiences, it's perfect at every stage of growth because it's right where it needs to be at that time in its growth stage. And, um, and as we live for Jesus and if, as we've accepted Jesus, we're also covered by his robe of righteousness as long as we're not harboring any cherished sin or not uh, neglecting some known duty because Christ's robe of righteousness will not cover those things. As long as we're, Christ has our full hearts and we're surrendered at that particular point, at that particular time, God views us covered with Christ's robe of righteousness, considers us perfect. Christ is perfect, you see. Not that we are, but that he is. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Ray. Good, uh, good thoughts. We appreciate you sharing that. Um, let's go over to Tuesday's lesson here, asking in faith. One of the prerequisites to receiving the promises of God is asking in what? Faith. Asking in faith, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Jesus said, whatsoever things you ask when you pray, believe when you receive them and you will have them. That's Mark 11:24. 24. 
So continuing his discussion, James is continuing his discussion on being complete, lacking nothing. Um, He encourages his audience to ask God for wisdom. So what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Someone wrote once, knowledge knows the difference or knows that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting that tomato in a fruit salad. That's the difference. Wisdom, wisdom has to do, biblical wisdom has to do with character development and conduct, how the Christian conducts their lives. Whereas knowledge is primarily intellectual enlightenment. Knowing may, knowledge, knowledge may be merely an accumulation of uh, uh, unrelated and unorganized facts without the ability to apply those facts to the practical life. Now, James, knowing that his audience, and we'll read that. Let me just read that for us. James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Um, As a matter of fact, we're going to have someone read for us James 3, verse 13 in just a moment. Does someone have that? James 3.13, we're going to get to you in just a moment, okay? We'll get the microphone to you, okay? So James is saying here, ask, ask God for faith. And this is following on with his discussion about letting, uh, letting patience have its perfect work, you see. James knows that his audience hasn't reached the goal of Christian maturity, and so he explains how many may understand that will make him victorious amidst the trials of life. God wants us to have an understanding relating to the challenges and trials we experience and how to be victorious. That's the wisdom that that James is writing about so that we might be victorious, we might uh, move forward in leaps and bounds in our Christian walk with, with, with Christ. This wisdom includes more than knowledge because knowledge does not guarantee right actions or right conclusions. Wisdom helps us place a proper value on things and ensure the proper use of the knowledge that we acquire from the Word of God. Um, you know, uh, one of uh, a pretty wise saying, and you may have seen this or, or read this at some time, some people need a glue stick, not chapstick. Um, that would be a, making the application of what we say, what we do with, uh, with our lips and what we, what, we, yeah, what we say. All right, so James chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. Notice how James uh, highlights the practical aspect of wisdom, what true biblical w- wisdom is. James 1, verses 19 to 21, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So true wisdom knows what to do with your, with your mouth, right? Wisdom is, is Bible knowledge applied, if we could just say it that way. James 2.15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say, well, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? And so wisdom knows how to, wisdom is, is applying God's word. It takes care of those that are in need. James 3 and verse 13. Thank you. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Okay, so genuine wisdom is demonstrated in good works. And this is the correlation between uh, wisdom that James talks about and his previous statement about letting patience have its perfect work. God wants us to have a practical knowledge of his word. He wants us to have knowledge of his word and to apply that knowledge, and that is true wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of 
wisdom, the wise man said. That's right. But there is a flip side to faith, and that's on Wednesday's lesson. There is a flip side to faith. And we'll continue reading in James chapter 1, verses uh, verse 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no what? Doubting. No doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The antagonist of faith is doubt. That's the antagonist of faith. James describes a person who doubts the goodness of God here as someone who wavers or is inwardly divided. That's what that word double-minded simply means, to be inwardly divided. Um, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the experience of the um, children of Israel when they came to Kadesh Barnea. And they, they heard two reports. We can go in, we can take this land. The other one said, no, no, there are giants over there, too big, we can't manage it, we can't deal with it. They had the choice and they wavered. And they said, no, we can't go in. And then when God pronounced punishment and said, well, for 40 days that the spies were in there, you're going to be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And do you remember, the, you remember their response? Oh, hold on, we'll go in, we'll go in. That's being double-minded, that's being unstable. They weren't truly repentant, um, they were just sorry for the consequences, you see. Um, but that was their experience, being double-minded. John Bunyan characterized the type of, this type of person in Pilgrim's Progress as Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's what he called the man, Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> Is it possible to face both ways at once? No, not possible. I can't do it. Some people, though, in their spiritual experience do. Moments of faith, moments of serious doubt, rather than just trusting the Lord and abiding in his promises and embracing his word. Uh, James 4 verse 8, and we won't read it, but James 4 verse 8 gives us a solution to being double-minded in all our ways. So we want to increase our faith, amen? We want to increase our faith, and that's what the disciples desired of Jesus in Luke chapter 17 verses 5 and 6. They desired, Lord, increase our faith. And what did Jesus say? If you have the faith of a mustard seed. You have the faith of a mustard seed. Jesus makes it clear that it's not the quantity of faith, but the quality of faith that makes the difference in the life of the believer. Either a person has faith or they don't have faith. The smallest amount of faith can accomplish seemingly impossible tasks, like telling that mulberry tree, be removed and it will be removed. This was hyperbole. Jesus wasn't saying your faith could remove mountains or trees. He wasn't encouraging his disciples to do that, but that they would be able to remove obstacles and mountains in their life. By his grace, they would be able to conquer those things, even if they had just a small dose of faith, the size of a mustard seed. And that mustard seed produces the largest of all herb, herb trees. Did I say herb? I did. Poof. Herb. There it is. Herb. But you know it as herb. So, uh, but small seed, big results. And that's all Jesus says you need is small. And God will allow it to grow. Again, it's not the amount but it's the genuineness of the faith that Jesus is concerned about. There's a question that came in, uh, Jan or Matt, who has that question? Do you have that question there? We're going to come to your question here in just a little bit. Let's go over to Thursday's lesson. I want to make sure we get Matt and Jan here. Run over to Thursday's lesson. I think your question's a good question. Um, Thursday's lesson, the rich and the poor. Both James and Jesus in this lesson uh, place value of human worth far above the acquirements, accruement of things. And when you compare 
James and Jesus' teachings, you'll see, you'll see that. Now, someone had uh, some Bible verses for us here, but we're not going to have the time to get to those verses, unfortunately. But just make a note uh, here that when you compare James 1 verses 9 through 11 with Luke 8 verse 14, Jesus is talking about how uh, that the love of riches and, and money and possessions can choke out the spiritual life and that eventually riches will end up fading. James 1.27 and compare that with Matthew 25. James says a pure and undefiled religion is this, uh, that we visit the widows and orphans um, and so on. And it's very good advice. Compare that with Matthew 25, Jesus' teaching about the sheep and the goats and taking care of those who are less fortunate. Active care. Faith has an active care for the less fortunate. And then we have James chapter 5 verses 1 through 4. With, uh, and compare that with Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Luke 16 is the parable of the man who built a barn and he wanted to build a bigger one because he acquired a whole bunch of stuff. And God says, this day will be required of you. And he, he, uh, well, a greedy person will be disappointed when it's all said and done. And so Jesus and both Jesus and James uh, dealt with this issue of faith um, it's being, it's being expressed in deeds of mercy, uh, helping others, expressing kindness, and, um, and not putting a whole lot of value on the things and the acquirement of things here in this world. I don't know if we're ready to get to the question. Okay, we'll get to the question here. All right, Matthew, thank you. Pastor, sometimes it's, it's hard not to doubt. What are some practical things I can do to increase my faith? Okay, so uh, good question. And um, it's a question probably a lot of us have. You know, Pastor, is, is, we're talking idealistic here, and sometimes I have my moments where I doubt. Um, there are c certainly solid things we can do each and every day. Uh, Romans 10 verse 17 tells us that, uh, that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the the Word of God. So one thing we ought to be doing every day to increase and strengthen our faith uh, is to study God's Word, spend time listening to God speak to us. There is power in the Word of God. It's not just a book. The, the words jump out. Jesus', Jesus life is portrayed to us and we can be encouraged. The other thing is spending time looking at Jesus, looking at his ministry and his life, a life of faith. That bolsters our faith and encourages us as well. And the other thing that I probably would encourage is mark down and write down those areas in your life where God has answered your prayers and done things for you you never thought he would do. And when you look back on those moments, during those moments of doubt, your faith will be encouraged to see how God had led you in the past. Uh, so there are just a few things that a person can do to encourage their faith and, uh, and, and step away from uh, doubt which has a deteriorating effect on our faith. Well, at the end, as it's all said and done, James, uh, as we just review here today's lesson, James is mentioning here that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. And he uses trials to perfect our faith, to purify our faith. He also stresses that true wisdom reveals itself, in, in, uh, uh, itself through good deeds and conduct. Faith practices uh, the word of God. And then he reminds us that faith needs to be exercised in order to grow. And then finally, he reminds us not to be bound by earthly wealth, but instead to reveal a spirit of, uh, of, of kindness 
and uh, generous and have a spirit, a generous spirit. It's been a good lesson, a lot to cover, and I, uh, I've gone over time. But uh, boy, I wish we could spend more time on these, on these lessons. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.